Greetings, greetings, greetings. Wow, how nice to see you. Um, yeah, it could be useful for me if, uh, if folks are willing, if you're in a place where it's okay to just turn on your video for a sec and you, then you can turn it back off just so I can get a, make some connection with you even briefly, it would be great. Hi. Nice to see you. Hello. Hello, hello. Ah, oh, great. So, yeah, some uh, some folks I've been seeing at Yuz for a long time. Some maybe have been coming during these last three months while I've been away. Some may be here for the first time. Yeah, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. I want to mention that uh, this is my first talk, my first time with you since returning from three months at Tassajara. So I've been uh, living in the woods and the mountains and the wilderness for the last three months. And sort of the inspiration for the discussion uh, tonight. Um, I'm hoping to reconnect. I'm really eager to hear how you are and uh, what's alive for you in your practice. Um, since coming out of since coming out of the mountain valley, I've been inspired to sort of envision what's possible for our community over the next year. So, um, yeah, interested to hear. So, a note: why uh, why was I away? Um, I was I was invited by the abbot at City Center to um, to serve in this training role, uh, the head monk, the shuso at Tassajara for ninety days. It's kind of a ninety day rite of passage. Um, another way of thinking about it is like a three-month-long ceremony uh, in which I, the, the, primary, the primary responsibility is to share the responsibility of the abbot for caring for the, the community of practicing monks for, for those three months. So I did that largely by just doing my own practice, um, modeling, uh, teaching, um, ceremony, and a big part of it was being good Dharma friends. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a transformative time, and I think you'll get a sense for it as we go along. Um, so why does that, why does it matter? Uh, this was the inspiration for tonight, is what, what can three months in the mountains sort of suggest about our, what's often called in-the-world practice, practice in the world? Um, urban practice if you're if you're uh, maybe living in San Francisco like I am now how do we see the city when we're when uh, uh, we've been immersed in a mountain for three months so I've I've sort of distilled and collected my thinking around uh, what I'm going to call five commitments five commitments to a transformational practice wherever we are and I want to pause and note the word transformational because Soto Zen has a lot of emphasis on not doing, non-doing. So transformational, some folks can kind of get caught with that word. But um, to say that the body and the mind are always adapting, always changing, taking in information and changing in different ways. And we can be conscious about how to influence that change. Uh, transformational can mean having a really light touch, 
I really like touch with our practice. Or it can mean being deliberate and very intensive and directed or anywhere in between. So transformation can cover things like befriending ourselves or dedicating ourselves to rest or restoring. On the other end of the spectrum, it can be dedicating ourselves to strengthening and striving and pushing into some new growth. All of, all of that is included and everything in between. Soto Zen and the, the view of Soto Zen doesn't leave anything out. So to enter into these five commitments, uh, into, enter into talking about the five commitments, it's, um, I think it's important to hold everything together by taking just a moment to connect with what it is that is actually alive for us in our practice. It's not like we do transformational practice just for transformation's sake, but to manifest, to manifest something. Um, and that doesn't always come from the intentions of the small I, but maybe something bigger that's inside us or living through us or all around us. So some of the ways you might connect with this are reflecting like today and this week and this month, what's motivating? What's motivating me in my practice and in my life? Um, more dramatic, you might reflect on the question of what is my vision of a liberated life? Um, it's been my it's been my tendency to sort of um, imagine small, and over the course of these three months, I've really been living into dreaming big. So, uh, taking a dramatic instruction like that, what what's my vision of a liberated life? Um, can open up some other kinds of vistas. Uh, that's kind of leaning into the positive sides. One other way you can get get in touch with what's most alive for you in your practice. What are my unique aversions? What is like uh, another, I don't know if any of you ever had the, um, had the experience of having to come up with a short speech about your pet peeves, like uh, one minute on a pet peeve. Talking about those sorts of things, it's like that little gritty bit of sand that's like just keeps showing up over and over and just uh, that discomfort that, that is, uh, seems to be uniquely yours. Um, so maybe there's something connected with that. Or in the spirit of non-doing, maybe it's a reflection about uh, how is it that just this is totally complete and enough right now. So all those are offered as ways to um, sort of connect with what's alive for you. Mine for right now, by way of example, is to continue to make space for this practice period to live in me. It's like I've, I've just loaded up the body and the mind with all of this sort of wholesome training, and I can feel that I'm being worked by it still, even though I'm, I'm not in the valley. So how do I let that continue to grow? Um, so these five commitments, the transformational practice wherever we are. So the first one, uh, one of the key things I feel like I learned from this last practice period at Tassajara Shuso, uh, it's really helpful if you're going to set an intensified commitment around practice, set an end date, set an end date, do it for a specified amount of time. And I, f I feel like the principle here is that um, 
setting an end date makes the impossible possible. Uh, maybe, maybe my most relatable example from the practice period is it was one of my responsibilities for the 90 full days to um, wake up at 3.30 and uh, run the wake-up bell for the community. So you can imagine 20 degrees outside, i am got my headlamp on and I'm, I'm in the zendo, everyone or many people are still sleeping and I'm doing this, uh, this ceremony involving waking up the zendo with the bell and then I run through the community. Uh, uh, calling everyone to awaken. It's like the attention, the intention that I have to support everyone in practice is right there. Ding -a -ding -a -ding -a -ding -a -ding -ding ding Wake up, everyone. Um, yeah, and just on a physical level, I feel like that that um, that in itself changed my body. Uh, many of you know I had an injury a couple of years ago, so at the beginning I was walking the wake up bell rather than running it. And then I was sort of like hobbling for a little while. And then I was at a like a balanced open gate. I, I was able to jog by the end just by uh, keeping it up, keeping it up and you know listening to my body when it was time to rest a little more, push a little more, you know. But setting an end date made the impossible possible. I, I don't think I, I know very many people who would say for the rest of my life, I want to commit to waking up at 3.30 in the morning and running in the cold to wake a bell, wake, uh, run a wake-up bell. Maybe more, maybe more palatable to say for 90 days. So maybe there's something in your, in your vision of your own practice where um, you're feeling, a, you're feeling a, a push or a call into some, some deepening of, of an inner quality, a generosity or your preset practice or your zazen practice, but setting a specified time, I think is really helpful. The second commitment I want to talk about, um, I want to introduce by another, another image from the practice period um, that illustrates a, a really important principle that uh, comes up over and over again, that practice happens from the body to the brain as well as the brain to the body. There's a place for study and a place for uh, communication from the brain to the body, but body to the brain. So let me explain what I mean. Um, I, was there for, I was there at Tassajara for maybe 10 days, maybe two weeks before formally entering as the head monk for the practice period. So there's a, there's a ceremony to mark the change. And before that point, more or less, I'm, I'm just, I'm a member of the Sangha and I don't have any extra responsibilities aside from that 3.30 wake-up bell. I'm doing the trash and recycling. I'm cleaning the bathrooms. And um, I I'm anticipating that there's a transition coming. So the transition happened not through thinking about, oh, there's going to be a change, and not through some sort of analysis but it was through a ceremony. It was an enactment that communicated with my body and let me know, oh, something is changing right now. And it involves all of the monks being lined up inside the Tassajara Zendo. Um, if you've never been there before, it's, um, 
it's a wooden rectangular building, wo wooden floor, wooden ceiling, and then a meditation platform all the way around the perimeter. And in the center of the room, there's this beautiful altar with a big Buddha on it. So for this ceremony, I'm led in. Uh, everyone's already in their places. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of isolated in this moment. I'm being, I'm being brought into the community. And then the key, one of the key moments is scripted, where I go up to the abbot who's seated. And after doing some bows, I refuse. I say that uh, more or less, I say this responsibility is too great for me. <laughs> uh, I can't, I, I can't do it. And I start and uh, I walk, I start walking off. Um, and then he calls me back and then we do it again. And then we do it. it he, uh, he makes the request a third time. And only then, only then do I accept in the, in the script. And there was something it, that always felt kind of contrived to me when I watched other people do it. I mean, doesn't that seem like, seems a little silly, um, but somehow it felt totally appropriate while I was doing it. Uh, you see, because I had had some notions before getting to Tassajara that I was actually ready for the job. It's like, oh yeah, I've been, I've been a priest for this many years and um, it's time, you know, I'm prepared. And then as I got there and I connected with the Sangha, I connected with the community of monks and uh, monastics. And I started to, it started to dawn on me, dawn on my body, just how big the responsibility was to share in the teaching of the community for three months. And I started to go, oh, oh no. <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've been wanting this for a long, long time and I'm scared. I don't know if I'm up for it. So the refusal felt totally, totally right, actually. And only, only after the assurances of the whole senior staff, the, the entire senior staff invites, and then the abbot invites three times, it's like, okay, I'm really gonna give this a try. And then it's on, the commitment is on. So the communication, again, was from the body to the brain. It wasn't through me thinking about the transition. And then one of the small things that's gonna apply to I think practice wherever you are, is that after that ceremony, my seat on the, on, on the meditation platform, which was facing the wall, then turns around. So when I'm meditating, I'm facing the room. Instead of facing the wall, I see the whole Sangha. Not that I'm looking around, but everyone is in my peripheral vision and I'm seated in such a place that I'm, I, I've got the, the front of the altar in my line of sight. Even just that communicated something to my body and to my brain. Something, something's changing here. Something has changed. And this brings me to pretty clearly stating what the second commitment is. Uh, may sound a little funny. If you're, going to, if you're going to enter into a period of intensified practice, a commitment that can be very helpful, rearrange the furniture. Like change something about your physical environment not just visually, but such that you have to move around the space in a different way. And that can be a regular reminder to you about a, a practice intention. So, um, yeah, it could be, could be something small, it could be something big, could be all the, all the furniture in your bedroom. Could just be wherever you, wherever you regularly meditate, shift, shift that 90 degrees, 
shift turn it 180 degrees and just feel the feel the difference see if that registers mm. or you may get creative and sort of look around your space and see what can work but rearrange the furniture yeah so setting an end date rearranging the furniture um, this moment of turning the meditation cushion around for me that changed my view uh, while seated brings me to the third third commitment which um, I think is I think is one of the most important and that is to consider consider your companions this has everything to do with Dharma friendship um, one of the teachings I heard over and over and ended up saying a lot was um, from my Dharma grandparent, so two generations up. No one can do it for us, and we can't do it alone. No one can do it for us, we can't do it alone. And that really got me reflecting often uh, during the practice, just the practice of the practice period, or the practice of city center, or the practice of young urban Zen, all of the, all of the many people that make it possible. And thinking about the, the Tassara practice period itself, only possible because of actual material effort, material donations, time, work, tons of work of hundreds of people. And the hard work, counting just this year, of at least 100 people to make it happen. And I just kept thinking of all these people making this possible. And this gratitude would well up like my heart would fill and just like I would have all of this I will say I, all these tears and um, yeah all this wish to pay it back or pay it forward how to repay so much work and so much kindness so it, it cultivated a lot of gratitude in me so in, in considering considering companions I think about teachers I think about Sangha and actually, I thought a lot about uh, YSP, the Yaz Sangha program that supports young urban Zen. Um, yeah, I spent maybe more time than ever with my Zen teacher. And she was there over and over again to sort of like, uh, I think maybe the number one, number one job of the Zen teacher <laughs> was to let me borrow her confidence that I could, I could keep doing this, I could keep going. I didn't have huge waves of self-doubt, but there, was a, there are so many details. And it's like, do I have this right? Um, it's all important, I you know, want to do this well. So always there to clarify. And uh, yeah, to shine, to shine with care and confidence and to, to loan me that. The Sangha was there, the community was there to, to make requests and hold me accountable, uh, to mirror me, and I could see how and when what I was doing was working and what, how it wasn't for, for different people. Yeah, the whole, the whole learning was quite relational. So considering companions. And then I thought a lot about Young Urban Zen, actually. I thought a lot, a lot about the Yaz Sangha program. Um, so I think if you're, 
again, if you're committing to a, a period of practice, there are. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be hyperbolic and say there are countless benefits. <laughs> I don't know how many there actually are. Numerous benefits to uh, one. I think reflecting on all the people that support you already supporting you to do what you do. Uh, and then um, connecting with Dharma friends. Uh, could, could be just one, one Dharma friend who you're like, very clear, this is going to be my intention for these next four weeks. I'm going to try to practice on, on this, and I want to check in with you once a week about how it's going. Um, yeah, so helpful. So helpful. So deep bows of gratitude to the Yaz Sangha program. <laughs> um, two sort of unexpected ways that companions showed up and may, may illuminate something uh, or ring a bell for you around this commitment of considering companions. One was I, I felt more connected than ever to the, the lineage of practitioners, to the, the ancestors, the Zen ancestors. Um, it went very practical terms. They just kept up the teachings and kept up the practice generation after generation. And it's only because of that that I get to, I get to do what I'm doing. So even if we, if we start counting with, say, um, kind of arbitrary, almost arbitrary, to start counting with Eihei Dogen as the founder in Japan, that's still 800 years of practitioners. You know, it's a lot of generations of a lot of effort and teaching. And um, love, actually. Yeah, not to mention the ancestors all the way. The Chinese ancestors go so much further back. Maybe another 600, 700 years, and then ancestors in India. So that was sort of an unexpected thing that came up for me, um, connection to the ancestors. The other was a connection to the wilds. The wilderness was like my best friend while I was down there. The number one companion, which I, I'm sort of happy to share because Earth Day is coming up. Um, so I think we can reflect on that fact. But when you're considering companions and how they support intensive practice, one of the things one of the things was just the trees and their giant silence and their their depth of root. And I was I was recently in. Um, uh, state park in Felton, a redwood state park, and I learned that ju apparently just the outer, just the outer layer, outer layers of bark is the only thing that's alive, and everything else is storage space. <laughs> everything else, but there was this giant, like eleven foot cross section of a, a tree that was felled in the '30s, and you could see the time go all the way back to before the year zero and see all these major events and this tree has been standing the whole time so there was this connection uh, to uh, deep time through the trees at tasahara and the rocks yeah so connecting to the wilds good companions yeah fourth commitment support this sort of practice to punctuate the day with ritual this was uh, one of the aspects of Soto Zen practice that, that came most alive for me 
in, in sort of new and unexpected ways. Um, there's this there's this comparison in uh, Jungian psychology of the the conscious mind to the unconscious mind and their breadth and power and the unconscious mind is likened to a cork bouncing on the ocean. <laughs> it's just like the scale is so big what we don't know and we don't see about this life in that way of thinking. Mirrored a little bit, though they're talking uh, talking about a different topic, but the Blue Cliff Record, koan number 80, Joshu talks about uh, a ball bouncing on a stream. Yeah, so punctuating the day with ritual. This is something, this is something that gets, um, it's sort of an acquired taste. I don't know how it is for you, actually. Um, ritual and Ritual and ceremony is something that grew on me over years. Um, and now it feels like it opens a channel between my conscious life and whatever is deeper in me, this broader life. It opens the channel such that there's communication between those two. In very practical terms, I'm inspired by the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed while I was away, and uh, his practice of uh, having these little, little gatas or little verses um, that mark different points in the day. Like there's a hand-washing gatha, or there's one for when you go to the bathroom, uh, outside, outside the, the bathroom, bow to, perhaps bow to an altar the way we do here at Zen Center. Ritual punctuated the whole day during this practice period, from the wake-up bell, zazen, service, one that, uh, one that applies really well in our broader, our broader lives is a little food offering. It's like uh, the way that I practiced this when I was living, living uh, in the city before, I would take whatever, whatever plate I had prepared for myself for any given meal, and I'd set aside one bite of each thing and say, oh, this is the offering portion. This is this little bit of food that I'm going to set aside. And I'm, I'm offering that up to the Buddha or my practice or the Sangha. It's just some little gesture of letting go and reconnecting with what's important. So there's a lot of room for invention in, uh, in punctuating the day with ritual, but it's important that it be um, expressive of inner dynamics and intentions, and that it be made physical. Um, so that ritual is not seen as too serious, I want to offer just a little bit of the fact that ritual can be an opportunity for humor. I was reading these, um, reading the Shuso logs. It's like a journal that all the Shusos at Tassajara have kept over the years. And uh, there were two really funny stories about ceremonies that had happened. Um, one was, um, one was someone, someone's about to be the, uh, the officiating priest for at a, like a, a monthly memorial. Or something and she goes she enters in formal way and the whole assembly is there it's all very stately <laughs> she walks in she's putting down her bowing mat her, her bowing cloth and she's about to do her first bow and she realizes that on the bowing mat some uh an animal has made its way in and left a waste offering right there on the bowing mat so that was a moment of surprise and reconsideration <laughs> 
Uh, and then another one, a little more benign, uh, is um, officiating priests making their way into a ceremony and realizing they still have their wool cap on. <laughs> and then taking a moment to pull it off and put it in their sleeve before the ceremony proceeds. So these can be little indicators. Am I present? Am I not? Yeah. So four commitments, setting an end date, uh, rearranging the furniture, good Dharma friendship, consider your companions, and to punctuate the day with ritual. And then a fifth commitment, the one that sort of brings it all together is to end with an event that brings it all together. Um, I sort of think about people who train for marathons or train for races. It's like I'm going to train for these three months and then I'm going to go do this very intense event and I'm building up toward X. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a way that having an event, having a marker like that at the end consolidates energy, directs energy. I feel kind of inspired to say, I, I feel like all of us have known events like this in our lives, not that are not even that are artificial, but simply an, an event in our life that was like before this happened and after this happened. It's like these defining moments, these watershed moments in your life where before X, the world was like this. After X, the world was like this. And it's like marriages, surprises, deaths, illnesses, injuries giant social grief in these last few years or the the first time someone said i love you and it's like before this and after this so keeping that keeping that in mind around these uh, these events that we end we end these periods of practice with and the culminating event of the practice period was something called the shuso ceremony in the old days, it's called the Ho Shen Shiki, Dharma battle. Sounds kind of intense, right? <laughs> um, we don't coach it as Dharma battle anymore. Um, but definitely, it had this element. There's a clear end date. I knew months ahead that uh, I, would be entering, I would be entering my personal death on April 2nd of 2022. Um, yeah, it's really scary, really scary. Um, there was the, there's this whole element of, of practice from the body to the brain, of rearranging the furniture. Um, the whole room is set up in a specific way in the zendo, the, the meditation hall, that only happens for that one ceremony. You don't see it for, for any, any others. So uh, my body was moving around in unique ways. One that was quite poignant is that... Um, the sort of centerpiece of the ceremony uh, after after everyone has settled in uh, is a is a rapid a rapid wholehearted q a with every member in the sangha so um, we have everyone who has not been shuso before on one side of the room and everyone who has on the other side of the room Start with, the, start with the folks who have not on one side of the room. Number one, 
gives their one breath, one breath question from the heart of their practice right now. What are you practicing with? Like ask the question that would change your practice, that sort of instruction. And it's, and I'm holding, I'm holding a staff that, that uh, is an investment of the authority of the abbot in one hand. And I'm holding a fan in the other such that, I don't know, you can't really see this, but it's, a, it's at once both an authoritative and a very vulnerable posture because my heart is exposed. My whole front body is exposed. I'm sort of wide open. One person asks their one breath, their one breath question. I give a response and then I go clack with this big staff on, on the ground. And then the next person and we do it again. And I, the task is to like, just be right there with this person, completely respond, completely meet, and then totally let it go and meet the next person just over and over. Um, so we do this whole side and then we get to the other side and the folks on the folks on the side of the, the room where they have they've done the ceremony before, often they like to do a little poking and prodding. So things can really get intense. Um, but this all this all sort of reflects the the both the rearranging of the furniture and the companionship. Like these were all my good Dharma friends helping me make this transition and to op open my open my heart in new ways by like continually asking me to respond in this high pressure high high sort of high stakes ritual yeah high stakes depending on how you see it but one person said the only mistake you can make is insincerity everything else is just open hearted connection yeah So ending with an event, I'm not going to suggest you need to get 50 of your friends together to grill you with Q&A, but um, in reflecting on whatever it is that the practice, the practices that is calling to you, like what's deep in your heart right now? And, and um, letting that ending event sort of grow out of that impulse or that knowing, that depth of you. Yeah. Then there's a bonus, a sixth commitment <laughs> to uh, plan for plan for some time to let yourself take it in afterwards, a period of integration. It's often said, I really like this teaching, so I repeat it a lot. A, um, there's a say there's a retreat of seven days. You get to day seven, you're done. That's the halfway point. And then you have seven days of an integration period where it's still really working you. So I was I was talking to a, a teacher of mine and about this whole thing, the three months, and I was like, I mean, so much happened, I don't know what to make of it. He said, Oh, you don't need to worry about that. It's making you. Maybe in three months you can you can say something about what to make of it. So my um, my wish for tonight wasn't to sort of make sense out of the Shuso practice period, but to, to start to glean, start to harvest uh, some, of the, some of the learnings and the teachings and see how do they apply in our, in our life in the city. 
I have the I have a very clear sense that I'm going to be I'm going to be drawing on this for months or years to come. So this will just be the first uh, the first go at that. So yeah, as you're as you're thinking about your practice and the and the months and the the year ahead, let me take some time to reflect on what's alive and what's close for you. Envision a liberated life. And then uh, maybe keep these five commitments in mind to support a transformational practice. Yeah. You won't find these, I'll say in closing, you won't find these on any of the classic Dharma lists. Um, they are reflections of mine that, uh, that have come through, come through my observation of, of what this practice is in a lived way. Yeah, the reflections that come through living in community, living the Dharma, uh, which in itself was a training in trusting the Dharma over these last three months. Yeah, offered humbly. Thank you very much. Right, so we'll, we'll have some time for Q&A and discussion. Uh, and then if we have time still, we'll do some breakout groups after that. But yeah, I'm curious what's on your mind um, can be in the realm of um, yeah, actually can be in the realm of anything. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, I'm very interested in how your practice is going and um, thinking, thinking in aspirational terms, both in your own practice and then in, in terms of the community. What are the challenges that are up? And uh, yeah, what kind of commitment do you want to make to yourself for the, the months ahead? <laughs> <laughs>